0: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, another day, another podcast. What's going on, my man? Not so much. Today, we are going to get really concrete and tactical around mental health because it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And um, whatever it is that you do, having a solid foundation of mental health is just absolutely core to sustaining a more genuine kind of excellence over time. Uh, Before we get in, for new listeners, welcome to the show. For old listeners, a reminder, we are 100% independent. That means that our show is brought to you by the community of listeners. And if you'd like to support the show and get all kinds of neat stuff, head over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. For as little as $5 a month, you get access to all sorts of great value. This includes a live monthly book club where we bring on authors of best-selling books to discuss their work and to answer questions from our group. It includes eBooks and guides to resilience training, sustainable excellence, even some nutrition advice in there. We consulted experts. And all sorts of other great things. So again, if you want to support the show, it is about the price of coffee with inflation. We haven't updated for inflation yet. It's probably less than the price of a coffee. Um, You support the podcast and the value is there. So check it out, www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. All right. So let's get into this week's topic as
1: you noted, Mental Health Awareness Month, we've spent a lot of time researching, writing about, and both of us experience uh, varying degrees of of mental health and mil- mental illness. So what we thought we'd do is outline a couple of the key concepts that I think are important from a mental health standpoint. And
0: so, we put it to 11. So we we tried to get these 11 core concepts and principles um to narrow down a a big world of research and writing
1: all right so let's we've got 11 so let's just go through these and um and uh give give the listeners something some actionable advice so let's start with number one saying burnout anxiety or depression result from a chemical imbalance is inaccurate saying these conditions result from environment behavior is also inaccurate. It's not either or, it's both and. And I think this is such an important concept because we like simple solutions to complex problems. And mental health, mental illness is a very, very complex and nuanced problem. And if we go to either extreme, what happens is we we kind of short circuit our uh, opportunities
0: for dealing with and addressing the issues. And it's a false dichotomy altogether, because what's happening in your brain, in your brain chemicals, are a direct reflection of what's happening around you. And how you perceive what's happening around you is a direct reflection of what's going on in your brain. So uh, like all things that get polarized and made too simple, the whole chemical imbalance theory is false. But at the same time, people would say like, oh, it's not chemicals. It's all behavior. That's also false. Uh, So trying to bring a little bit more nuance. What does that mean? It means that if you or someone that you love is really struggling, it's worth uncovering both of those rocks. That can mean talking to a physician who tends to be more on point for the biological, what's happening in the brain, as well as talking to a therapist, a counselor, a community member, someone else in tweaking the environment, Um, generally speaking, it's good to approach both of those things when addressing mental health concerns. So the second big point, quite related, is that the evidence on the most commonly prescribed psychiatric medication, which is SSRIs, and I should say commonly prescribed for the most common mental health conditions, depression, anxiety, phobias, and obsessive compulsive disorder. And here's what we know. If you zoom in really close, it is very hard to make sense of who SSRIs work best for, let alone how they work. No one really knows. There are different hypotheses on the mechanisms by which SSRIs work, but it's not as simple as, oh, there's more serotonin in the brain, so therefore you feel better. If anything, the leading hypotheses have to do with helping your brain remodel and rewire from learning. What this means... SSRIs work really well for some people in some situations. So it's worth being wary of anyone that is adamantly against SSRIs or anyone who thinks that they solve all the problems. So again, it's an important issue of mental health where people crave an either or yes or no kind of answer, but uh, there's a lot of nuance and it tends to be most in between. The last thing that I'll say is... SSRIs tend to work best for mental health issues in combination with therapy, which supports this hypothesis that what SSRIs are doing is they're creating the space for your brain to rewire and learn, but you have to give your brain the rewiring and learning. So you can almost think of it like an anti-inflammatory for your body. If you've got really bad acute inflammation, no amount of physical therapy is going to help until you wipe out some of that inflammation. And sometimes your body can do it on its own, but sometimes it's so intense it can't. Your body falls behind. So what do you do? You take a strong anti-inflammatory, and that opens up the space for the physical therapy to work. SSRIs can operate quite similarly. I love that analogy, actually.
1: It yeah, works, I use it a lot. Lurks really well. Um, the 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 point I drive home on this is a lot of times around uh, SSRIs and similar drugs. There's um, a lot of misinformation and a lot of contention, and it pushes us to the extremes. And I think people are wary of drugs that have large psychological effects. And um, it's worth pointing out that there's an incredible individual nature to all this stuff. So if someone is like adamantly against uh, SSRIs or similar medication, it's probably worth being wary of them. Um, and the best thing, as always, is to check with your phys- physician, psychiatrist, etc., to figure out what the best path forward is because there's a whole host of different drugs that have slightly different effects and um, can work in slightly different manners. So give yourself the flexibility and don't get tied to, you know, whatever you read on the Internet.
0: That's good life advice. Don't get tied to whatever you read on the internet. Of course, unless it's on Steve's Twitter feed. Then just buy it 100%. Next up, let's talk about evidence-based therapies. Again, we're going to talk about the areas that we've researched and written about and we know best, which is depression, anxiety, OCD, and now we're going to throw burnout in here as well. There are four big therapies that often get pitted against each other or spoken about as if they are competitive or competitors, but the truth is that there is so much overlap between all four. And the four are acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT for short, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT for short, dialectical behavioral therapy, or DBT for short, and Exposure and Response Prevention, or ERP for short. And at the core of all of these therapies is challenging, distressing thoughts. If that is successful, great. If it is not, moving to the behavior itself and learning to work with, to accept uncomfortable feelings, to still behave in alignment with your core values as you're having those uncomfortable feelings, and to marry really intense self-discipline, to do hard things, with fierce self-compassion, which helps you do those hard things.
1: Yeah, the way my athletic mind likes to think about this is they're just different workout types for applying a stress and then trying to grow and adapt to it. And just like in working out and physical exercise, there's a variety of different ways we can do that. Same goes with psychological or mental standpoints. I really, I'm going to give a plug for our mutual friend, um, Mark Freeman, who wrote a wonderful book, "You Are Not a Rock," which kind of simplified some of these approaches into a, a kind of standard, um, you know, saying, "Hey, all these things are similar. We we push them apart, but it's it's actually." quite simple on how to do some of these things a wonderful book to to look at um and yeah the the other thing that i'd i'd say here is that often like just like in physical training you almost get these groups that pit each kind of therapy against each other and it's almost like you have these clubs or groups where it's like this one works better and this one works better and this is for that and just like drugs, there's a highly individual nature to it. So if you go try, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is often a gold standard for some um, illnesses, and it doesn't work, don't be like, ah, therapy doesn't work. Go try a different different type of therapy. therapy. Try a different program. Just like if you were exercising, you wouldn't say, hey, I tried this. I tried this coach and you wouldn't say running doesn't help fitness. You would say, Hey, this coach wasn't for me. I got to find another coach. So give yourself the flexibility to explore.
0: And many well-trained therapists, um, are well, uh, well-versed in all of these methodologies and will combine them. So it, it's becoming less of an issue where it's, Hey, I only do DBT or I only do ACT, um, which is good. So, Point number four, which I briefly touched upon, is that the worse your experience of anxiety, depression, OCD, or burnout is, the more the B part of these therapies, or in the case of acceptance and commitment, the more the C, the commitment, matters. And that is because by definition, these conditions distort thinking. So using thinking or cognition or the dialect is a way to try to fix distorted thinking generally doesn't work. So you can't use broken thinking to fix broken thinking. Whereas behavior, taking action, works directly on feelings. So a neuroscientist would say that behavioral therapies targets the brain stem, the part of our body that controls how we feel. And For really well-ingrained ruts and, again, distorted thinking patterns, we have almost got to bypass our cortex, the thinking part of our brain, and go right to the feeling part of our brain. And then we give ourselves a chance to correct those thoughts later on. Um, I've written about this a million times. Steve's written about it 100,000 times. Our good friend Rich Roll says that mood follows action. The way that I like to think about it is right thinking follows right action, Sometimes people say that you don't need to feel good to get going, you need to get going to feel good. What all of these different sayings represent is what the evidence calls behavioral activation. And for the neuroscience nerds, again, because I think it's fascinating, we tend to over-index on our intellect and on the thinking part of our brain and under-index on the feeling part of our brain. But the feeling part of our brain holds a lot more power over our moods and going right to behaviors and actions, that, that targets the feeling part of our brain.
1: Yeah, I don't have much to add. I think that sums it up. And hopefully what you're getting at is a theme of there are multiple different ways to attack these, we'll say, issues or problems. And your best bet is to have multiple different avenues to do that. So if thinking doesn't work, take action. Right. If action doesn't work, you can shift attention. There's a million different ways to do these things, but it's almost like the way I like to conceptualize it is if I have more tools in my toolbox and have trained them, and by training them, I mean either working with a therapist or spending time developing those skills. Uh, the higher likelihood that whatever problem I'm going to face, I'm going to have a tool that at least somewhat helps. And sometimes it's about cycling through all those tools and sometimes they fail, but finding one that that works in that moment to help uh, get your mind and brain back
0: on track. Love it. All right. So concept number five, again, is something that we briefly touched upon, which is this notion of self-discipline and self-compassion going against each other when in fact they're complementary. So I'll be really quick here because this is also a topic that we've both written about. People tend to think of self-compassion and self-discipline as completely opposed when in fact um, self-compassion is what enables you to be self-disciplined. So when you're dealing with a mental health issue, it is very, very hard to do anything to get out of bed, to show up, to confront your fears, to work with a therapist, you name it. And the more that you can learn to be kind to yourself, to accept what's going on, to be okay with not being okay, the more you'll be able to bring self-discipline and do the hard work of getting better. And that's really it on that one. Yep. I like to say it frees you up, right? And
1: because we, we tend to resist the thing, and if we continually tell ourselves to like just be disciplined, just get grit your way through it, et cetera, et cetera, our brain gets the message that this thing is something that we should resist. If we send the message of compassion, our brain gets the message that this is something we can accept. And once you get to acceptance, then you can actually deal with the thing and figure out, you know, what to do about it. All right. Let's talk about identity, Steve. All right. Identity. So this one is, I think, often under uh, misunderstood, but very important, which is labels work until they get in the way. And what we mean by that is labels can be helpful. So telling yourself that you have OCD, for example, can be incredibly freeing because you say, oh, This explains the thoughts that are going through my head. This gives me a reason uh, for why I do these things or have these different thoughts, behaviors, actions than most other people. That can be incredibly um, freeing and incredibly helpful because it gives you something to grasp onto and make sense. But on the flip side, that label can almost be a little bit of a trap because if you become intertwined with that thing so that's almost i am you know name your disorder or your experience instead of i have anxiety ocd etc when you're too intertwined you it's almost like you're so zoomed in that you you lose a little bit of perspective and you've handed that thing more power because you've over-identified with it. So when it comes to I- identity and diseases, illnesses, etc., you want to make sure that it's useful and productive and not so intertwined that it becomes harmful and taking away from things.
0: Yeah, I was just having a conversation with a psychiatrist about this very topic and um I really liked how he put it, which is, ask yourself if the label is helpful and if it's enlarging your world or contracting it. And that's a really good heuristic for when the labels are working versus when they get in the way. And psychological flexibility, which is so key to mental health, is really about the capacity to use something and then leave it behind when it stops working. And I think that um, it's a really good method for thinking about how we identify and how we fuse with... uh, with various experiences, so number seven of eleven concrete principles today is around burnout, and we said this about four years ago. At the time, it was kind of innovative. A lot of people cited us. Now, I actually think it's much more um, common, which is great. It means that we've done our job, and in, in large part, with help from longtime listeners and readers of our work, spreading this message, which is that. The easy way to think about burnout is it's a result of how many hours people work. The harder but more accurate way to think about burnout is it's a result not only of how many hours work, but how people work, how they do their work and why they work. So in particular, if people have autonomy or some control over their schedules, if they have meaning, so their work feels important, and if they have belonging, so they feel like they're part of a community then they become much more resilient to burnout and they become much more able, willing, and wanting to work long hours. Now, it doesn't matter if somebody is off the charts on those things. If they're working 20 hours a day every day, they're going to burn out. But in less extreme situations, what you often have is people attribute burnout to working too many hours when in fact, it's just because these ingredients are missing. So maybe a more concise way to say it is that Yes, hours worked as a contributor to burnout, but it probably is on the same order, if not lesser than these other big factors of autonomy, meaning, and belonging. And I think where you see this most is in medicine. So physicians are burning out for all sorts of reasons. Uh, One of them is that more and more of the work has shifted to documentation, into patient direct messages, and to things that involve staring at a screen, which is not what people went into medicine to do. So a physician that used to have a really meaningful practice where they had autonomy and they could be creative and they felt like they belonged to their community is likely much more willing and happy to work long hours and to work hard and find fulfillment and meaning in that and have a good life than a physician who's also working long and hard but spending 60% of their time doing bullshit documentation.
1: Yeah, you know, you also see this, Yeah, I think you see this in almost every kind of helping profession. Uh, teaching is another one where it's almost like we've taken advantage of the inbuilt purpose around that, whether as a physician, to help people, as a teacher, to help young sh- children. And we said, oh, this is enough. And we've over-indexed on that while taking away autonomy and often the sense of belonging and turn it into kind of a bureaucracy which gets in the way. And as you rightly point out, it's why physicians' burnout is at all-time high. It's also why teachers are having their own kind of great resignation right now. So the way I like to look at it, whatever field you're in, if you're leading, is fulfill people's basic psychological needs. And if you fulfill people's basic psychological needs and show that they're wanted, that they have freedom and some sense of control over their work, that they can make progress, that they are valued and that they belong. If you do those things, then that frees people up to perform. It takes a whole stress off of them and they can do lots of work. Will under that, you know, or more work and be more resilient um, when they have those needs met.
0: Love it. So, very much related to that is the power of rest and recovery and breaks for burnout. This was a big uh, concept and topic of our first book together, Peak Performance. And what the research shows is that resting on regular intervals, i.e., sleeping between days, taking a day or two off on the weekend, helps prevent burnout. And then if you're feeling overworked or on the edge of burning out, taking an elongated break. So a week, a two-week, maybe even a month vacation can reverse burnout. Now, what is also true is that these strategies, they can't compensate for crappy working conditions. So you can think of them like a band-aid. Another way to think about it is if you're in a workforce or you lead a workforce or you're in a job where you have very little autonomy, meaning or belonging, no amount of vacation or rest is going to protect you against burning out. Whereas if you're in a job and you have those things, but you've just worked really freaking hard, long hours, then yes, vacation and rest is going to help you. And the last thing that I'll say is there are times in any job where meaning, belonging, and autonomy might, instead of being at a seven out of 10, go down to a four out of 10. And if that's contextual and it's not permanent, then taking some extra breaks during those times is really helpful. But I think that what we're trying to say here is we need to have a little bit more of a complex view that rest in itself doesn't fix burnout and working too many hours in itself doesn't cause burnout. Yeah. So
1: let's go on to number nine, which I think is another important point, which is often for problems like this, we turn to self-help. And Brad and I write in the self-help world and a lot of it is wonderful and beneficial some not so much but some is great but you need to know okay when to transition from self-help to when you have genuine anxiety depression burnout OCD whatever it have you self-help isn't gonna really help you need to seek professionals you need to know when you get need to seek out evidence-based therapy, support groups, community, all of that good stuff. And I think having that understanding is important because so much of our culture today kind of points us towards this kind of rugged individualism where we need to solve our problems, especially if you're a kind of high performer, high pusher. You're used to, hey, I got to solve this problem and figure it out, and I'm going to read all this stuff, and that's great. But you got to know when to punt, right? You got to know when to go to something that is evidence-based or get a coach or get a therapist or whatever have you, um, depending on your situation.
0: Yeah, I think the only thing that I'd add is that um, a book can have a kernel of insight that can transform your life. But putting things into practice often requires more support than just a book and If you're in a state where you're already doing pretty well, you're much more likely to have a book transform your life than if you're in a hole. Because again, when you're in a hole, part of being in a hole is having distorted thinking. And when you read a book, well, what's the tool that helps you make sense of it? Your mind, your intellect, your thinking. So the way that I like to think about it is the best time to read books on mental health and excellence are when you're feeling relatively good and okay. Not when you're in a hole. When you're in a hole, what you need is to get beyond self-help. Now, maybe you can read a book with a therapist or with someone that can help you work through it. Um, but turning to someone, uh, you know, and saying "Here's a book" when they're in a hole doesn't help. One of my favorite stories comes from an episode of The West Wing in its very early days, and one of the characters is experiencing um, bad depression. And a priest walks by and sees him at the bottom of a hole, just looking miserable. And the priest says. The hell are you doing in that hole? You look terrible. And the guy says, ah, I, I don't know, but it's a deep hole. And then the priest throws him a book. He throws him the Bible and says, Here, read this. It'll help. Then a week later, he's still in the hole, and a psychiatrist walks by. And the psychiatrist says, What are you doing in that hole? And the guy says, I don't know. It's a, it's a terrible hole, but I can't get out. And then the psychiatrist throws him a bottle of pills and says, Hey, take these. It'll help you get out. And then finally, on week number three, he's still in the hole, and a good friend walks by. And the good friend says, what are you doing in that hole? And he says, I don't know. It's a deep hole, but I can't get out. And then the friend says, yeah, I've been in that hole too. Let me come down here and help you find the way out.
1: Love it. That's a nice story.
0: I love uh, that story. And it can be a therapist. It can be, you yeah. know, a friend is one person. But um, but yeah, you got to get out of that hole with help.
1: All right. So let's go to number 10 of our 11 we live in a culture that promotes mental illness, not well-being, and flourishing, and you can just look around, right? We live in a world that
0: you
1: know, promotes delusion and distraction and optimizing everything for our workload and really doesn't fulfill our basic psychological needs, doesn't promote acceptance, patience, belonging, community getting outside, moving. So what does that mean? To me is if, if you have a culture that kind of works against you, you're not going to... I mean, we can try, but you alone aren't going to change the culture. So you need to make sure you're doing the work to set up your environment and your local world so that it promotes the things, well-being and flourishing that you'd like. So what does that mean? All of what Brad and I talk about and write about, which is making sure your environment is inviting the right action, making sure you're not getting lost on social media, making sure that you have friends and community in your local world, making sure that you have some sort of exercise, walking, or movement routine, all of these ideas that kind of push against the, uh, the, the pull
0: of society towards mental despair. Love it. And that is a nice segue into the final point that we had for you today, which is that for better or worse and mostly worse, no one's going to do this for us. So we've got to start ourselves, especially when we're feeling well. The time to try to build a health that is conducive to flourishing is not when you're sick. It's when you're doing pretty good. And if you are doing good, that's the time to help other people that aren't. Because one day, shit's going to hit the fan for you, and you're going to need help from them. But waiting for some kind of miraculous utopian policy, probably not going to happen. And if it is, it's going to take years. So unfortunately, we don't live in a society that makes all this easy, which means that it's a practice. Fortunately, there are tools, many of which we've discussed today, others that we cover in our books, in our newsletter. Other very smart people cover these too, and we've got to commit to these tools with self-compassion while realizing that, again, these tools only get you so far and sometimes you still fall into a hole and you need help. It's not either or, it's both and. But throwing your hands up or throwing our collective hands up and saying, eh, I guess we're screwed. The culture sucks. Um, that can feel easy in the moment, but long term, that often feels harder.
1: I think that's spot on. So there are our 11 tips for mental health. Again, these are topics that we've covered in depth on um, other platforms, both on social media. But if you want to explore any of these more, you can head on over to thegrowtheq.com, click on our articles and blogs, and just search around, and you'll find in depth um, articles on all of these things with links to research and resources.
0: All right. Well, with that, we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you are an old friend, thank you for supporting our work, for listening, for joining us on our intellectual journey towards a more genuine kind of excellence. If you're a new listener, we hope that you like the show. If you really want to go deep, check out the Patreon. And remember that the best and easiest way to support us is to subscribe to our podcast. And if you've already done that, share it with a couple of friends. Um, as we've so often discussed in today's conversation and more broadly, these things start as individuals, but they take hold in communities. So the more people that are wrestling with these topics, the better. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.